Well, thank you for joining me. I know it's been a long time since I've released a podcast episode. Uh, It still is uh, part of my desire to release these more often and more regularly. Uh, There's just a lot going on right now that I have to figure out before I do that. One of those things including finding a new place to record. As you can tell, the quality, the sound quality right now is not very good. Um, I'm, I'm in a small room with a, a lot of echo and uh, I don't have an expensive microphone. So I apologize for the very amateurish quality, but at the same time, this is an amateur podcast by definition. So, um, But I, I wanted to... Uh, just share some brief thoughts on a conversation I had not long ago online. And um, it was a disagreement, but it was, I mean, it wasn't anything over the top. It was, you know, just two Christians engaging each other, challenging each other. And and this was just one subset of the larger debate point. And I've been meditating and thinking about it, and and I just want to put it out there. And it's, it's this issue of this, this is something for pastors and Christians to work through. And the issue is, uh, how would you, as a, as a, as a congregant, as, as, as a member of a church on Sunday morning, or as a leader, a pastor, a deacon, elder of some kind, how would you answer the question, uh, is it or should it be the priority of a local church to make visitors feel welcomed? Okay, that, that's how it was phrased online, and that's kind of how it came up. Is it, is it our responsibility to make visitors feel welcome? Uh, when guests come into the church, when outsiders come into the church, when non-members are visiting the church, should we care about whether they feel welcomed? And as you can imagine, I'm going to give a nuanced answer to that. If it was an easy yes or no, it probably wouldn't be a podcast <laughs> episode, right? Um, so my answer is that it's both yes and no, just depending on, on how we break that down and, and how we look at it. So not a contradiction, but a paradox. It's 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 both uh, yes and no. And, and here's kind of where I'm coming from, and then I'll share a passage of scripture that I think addresses it. Uh, if we phrase it that specifically, should we care, or, or is it our responsibility to make people feel welcomed? If that's how we phrase it, then the answer is no. That That is not our responsibility, and we shouldn't even think about that. However, we can rephrase it and adjust it just a little bit where that I would answer in the affirmative. And, and it would sound like this. Is it our uh responsibility to be welcoming, right? Um, Should we be a church that welcomes people? Should we be a welcoming church? And to that, I would give an emphatic yes. Uh, Yes, that's how I would do it. And, and, And here's why this difference matters so much for a handful of reasons. Uh, when we phrase it as should, is it my responsibility, is it our responsibility to make someone feel welcomed? There's a a few reasons why we should not, why we should say no to that if it's phrased that way. And the first one that I want to say is that feelings are subjective. You have three reasons. And the first one is that feelings are subjective. In other words, we can't really affect how somebody feels. We can try to do that, and in our daily life, we do that all the time. But at the end of the day, we can't make someone feel a certain way. 
So how, how could we possibly take that burden on of how they feel about us matters, and I'm going to try to change the way they feel. Um, feeling can't be our guide. It's not objective enough. It's not something we have influence over. Rather, what we need is an objective guide as to how to love people, how to treat people. And then we can turn to that and say, okay, we did what we were supposed to do. Now it's up to them to respond to it. However, you know, between them and God. And so that's why I would say, yes, we need to be a welcoming church, meaning uh, the Bible tells us about loving our neighbor, loving the lost. The Bible tells us what compassion looks like, what love looks like. The Bible tells us about the local church and ecclesiology and what we should do, what we should not do. So that gives us an objective standard to look to and say, here's how we treat people and we should go for it, right? So but when we phrase it, um, you know, this is a church that makes people feel welcome. Well, that's that's not their fault, right? They can't affect the way people feel. So my, my goal, what I'm aiming at, is not their feelings. I need to aim to an objective standard, which we have in Scripture, that says, do this, treat people this way. And then, and then we have something objective to measure by and say, we did what God expected of us. I don't know how they felt about it, but we did what God expected of us. And the second point, which really now that I'm thinking about, this really is one point with just explained a little differently, but I'll just leave it a second point. The second point is this, is that people can, people can often, uh, people often do have inappropriate emotional responses to things, right? Sometimes we emotionally respond to something in a way we ought not to have. And how that looks in this particular discussion is it's very possible for a church to not treat visitors well and still have the visitor feel welcomed. It's also possible for a church to treat visitors very well and have the visitors feel unwelcome. And there's a lot of reasons for this, lots of reasons. Let me just give a couple that I've seen. So um, one time, and, and this isn't an exactly true story, uh, I'm, but this is based on a true story, but I'm gonna give this hypothetical uh, as if it was actually happened. And something very similar did happen, but. Uh, well, I think what I'm giving is not this wild hypothetical. I, th I think people can very much imagine this. Um, one time I was sitting in church, and right before the service started, I saw a new man walk in by himself and sit by himself. And from my vantage point, he didn't see me. So let's just assume no one greeted him. No one said hello to him. He just came in and kind of sat down. And I remember thinking, okay, as soon as service is over, I'm going to make a beeline for him, and I'm going to talk to him and introduce myself and tell him we're grateful that he's here and invite him back. And, you know, I'm going to be kind to him and make him feel like he exists and make him feel like we notice his presence and we're grateful for him. And then service ends. And as I'm going to, of course, there's just lots of people and people get my attention. I'm talking, talking, and I, I end up getting distracted. And I, I see him as I'm talking to someone else, I see him stand up and leave. Right? So this is a person who's come in. No one's talked to him. No one said hello. No one's greeted him uh, from beginning to end. He's he's he could have been the only one there, and no one would you know it didn't matter. And now let's say he comes back the next week, and you go up and you say, "Listen, I just want to apologize. Uh, the the way we treated you last week was inexcusable. Uh, I noticed that no one said hello to you, including myself. No one reached out to you, and uh, and I'm just so sorry. And, and imagine if he responded like this." 
I don't know what you're apologizing for. I loved last week. I had a great time. That's why I came back. Now, I, I've seen that happen. I, I have seen people feel welcomed when, quite honestly, they shouldn't have. <laughs> right? Um, and that's because people will come to church with expectations, and sometimes those expectations are not biblical. So a person, like in that hypothetical I just gave, if, if they maybe, let's, let's suppose they were raised in a church background where it was uh, very strict, very, you know, the kind of church where if you didn't wear a tie, they'd kick you out of church. And so, uh, and, and when you go, it's just very harsh and people are very cold and it's very critical. Just imagine that kind of a church setting and he's walked away from church and now he's come back. So his mentality is, if I come as I am, if, if I wear jeans and a polo, I'm going to get kicked out of church. And uh, everyone's going to be really critical of everything. But he shows up and, and he comes just as he is and no one complains. No one gives him a dirty look. No one asks him where his tie is. No one asks him why he's not wearing a suit. The, the sermon was not critical of anyone. They're, right. So from his perspective, because of the expectations he brought to church, he felt really welcomed. Even though I would argue that church did not handle him well. So he felt welcome. So is the church off the hook? I would say no. So just so he felt welcome, but that doesn't mean the church did something right. People can feel welcomed in a church where the, even though the church did not welcome them. <laughs> and, and, and likewise, I've, I've seen the other way around. I remember I was one time talking to a, a young man who was not going to church and we were close. And so I felt I had enough of a relationship to sit down with him and try to get to the bottom of this. And he mentioned how he had tried the church that I was working at. And he was very honest with me and just said, it just, it, it was too judgmental. Everyone there was so judgmental. And I said, okay, well, if, if we sinfully judged you, then I want to repent and I want us to get better. I want us to be more welcoming. So how were we judgmental? And he had no specifics. Right. He couldn't say, well, such and such treated me this way or you guys said this to me or someone, you know, asked me to leave or he, he just he just kept saying, I don't know. It just I just felt so judged. I just I could I just felt like I didn't fit in. I just and I was just like, unless you can give me something tangible, then have you ever thought that maybe we were perfectly pleasant and there was another reason, maybe your conscience or Maybe there's another reason you were feeling judged, but if you can't even point to a single thing we did that was judgmental, did someone say something harsh? Did someone give a dirty look? Did someone ask you to leave? Uh, was the theology critical for what? Well, you get what I'm saying. Um, just one third example, a lot of people will feel unwelcome to a church if the church is teaching things that they don't like, right? Maybe someone who's super pro-abortion, or forgive me, um, yeah, pro-abortion comes into the church, and it just so happens that week the pastor's preaching a certain text where he bashes abortion. He calls abortion sinful and murder. Suddenly, that person feels unwelcomed. But was the church really being unwelcoming by just simply, here's the text, here's the message, I'm preaching it, preaching God's truth? That's not necessarily unwelcoming, even though that person felt unwelcome. So these two points are kind of combined. One, we can't help how people feel. And related to that, how people feel is oftentimes a result of their expectations, and their expectations were not always proper. So we don't want to affect how people feel. We simply want to say, what is the Bible, what, what does Christ-like love expect of me when it comes to visitors? 
that's the standard, not, uh, not how do they feel. Many people have left a church and bashed that church, even though the church did nothing wrong. Let me just say, that, that happens all the time. And may, many people have gone to horrible churches and spoken very highly of it. So our goal is not to make people feel a certain way. Uh, our goal is to obey Scripture, obey Christ, love people the way Christ does, and their feelings are between them and God. So be a welcoming church, but don't be a church that tries to make people feel welcome. That's the distinction I'm making, and I think it's a, an important one. And then just lastly, the third thing I want to say is I, I think there's an interesting verse that actually addresses this. And I think this verse addresses the whole seeker-sensitive movement as a whole, but that's not what I want to talk about. I, I want to focus just on this issue of my responsibility to make people feel welcome. And this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And now the overall context is Paul is addressing um, the issue of speaking in tongues. He's addressing the issue of, of miracle working in the church, and he's focused on tongues specifically. And he essentially goes on to tell them why uninterpreted tongues, tongues that are done without interpretation and tongues that are not done in an orderly, decent fashion, are actually harmful to the church. And it's in that context he gives them some, some thoughts and some commandments that I think apply to this very issue. This is in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 6. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in other tongues, how will, you, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with the revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they do not make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret for if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others than 10,000 words in another tongue. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to this people by, I will speak to this people, by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in other tongues, then, is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles together, and all are speaking in other tongues, and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying, and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. 
The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. So uh, I know that was a long passage. I wanted us to get all of the context in. Uh, but it's really that end bit that I want us to focus on. Now, there's a lot here in regards to the the, the, the scripture that Paul utilized and the nature of tongues today, and I'm not going to get into all that. But what I want us to look at is that, that end part, Paul, so he establishes this principle that um, tongues that are not being interpreted, and he goes on right after that to talk about how tongues need to be done in an orderly fashion. So tongues that are done either disorderly or, but especially tongues without interpretation are useless in the church. They're useless because no one understands. You're not building anyone up. It doesn't. It's it's not helpful to have someone go up there and make noise. Just like it's not it's not true piano playing just to bang on the keys. And there needs to be a distinct sound. There needs to be meaning here. So Paul's saying, if you go up there and just speak in tongues and you don't know what you're saying and no one knows what you're saying, that's not helping the church. That's not worth our time. And and. Then he begins to apply that specifically in the context of outsiders. So this is the only place in the New Testament I know of where Paul specifically addresses what kind of has been known as the seeker-sensitive movement. In other words, this is a place where Paul very explicitly is telling the church what its obligation is to outsiders, non-Christians who are visiting our church. I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list. Uh, all the commands of Christ and loving people apply and, and natural law and all that stuff. But, but here Paul is specifically addressing his concern for people coming into the church. And what's interesting is he tells them, he ends it by saying that whatever you do, uh, the people will fall down and say, God is truly among you. God's really among us. So what I think is going on here is this. I think that Christians... Um, have assumed that, or forgive me, the Christians of the first century assumed that by showing off these miraculous works, they were proving the power of God to non-Christians, right? If, if a non-Christian comes in among us and we can speak in all these tongues, then they're going to know that this is legit, the power of God. God is truly among these people, right? Our tongues will prove our God is real. Our miracles will prove our God is real. And Paul says this amazing thing that it's exactly the opposite. They're, they're, they're going to come in here, if you speak all these tongues, they're not only going to not see the power of God in that, they're going to think you're crazy. You're, you're actually going to push them away. And so Paul does have a small hint of seeker sensitiveness to him. But Paul, is, Paul has a little bit of pragmatism to him, saying, don't, don't do something which will inevitably make them think you're crazy and push them away. But what is it then that he calls us to do? Uh... He calls us then to simply speak in a language that they can understand. That's as far as seeker sensitivity goes for Paul, right? Can the people understand your language? Do, are you speaking their language? And if not, do you have an interpreter? Like all Paul cares about is that the truth of God is clearly communicated in the right language. That's, that's as far as it goes for Paul. And, and so notice how he doesn't, uh, he doesn't address feeling. Right? He, he's not interested in making people feel a certain way. He's interested in making the truth proclaimed in an intelligible way. But, but that's the heart of, of our obligation to visitors. It's not to re-change re everything to make them feel a certain way. I, again, we are to love them. We are to welcome them and invite them back and be grateful for them. Uh, again, this isn't an exhaustive list. We, 
we still treat them well with kindness and grace and compassion and um, and care. But overall, uh, Paul's thinking is this. I'm not so much concerned with how they feel. I'm concerned with what they hear. And Paul says that if we do speak intelligible prophecy from God, if we do speak God's word to them, that is what will actually uh, overcome them and make them say God, God is really among those people. And it's interesting, this concept of, um, I'm sorry, I lost in my passage, this concept of the secrets of his heart will be revealed. Uh, I think some other translations even put the word conviction in there. So you almost you almost see Paul saying, I don't want them to feel good. If anything, I want them to feel bad, right? Not not because we sinned against them. We're not trying to make people feel bad. But, I mean, ultimately, the hope is that through the gospel call and through the proclamation of the character and works of God, that they will be convicted and judged righteously by God. So there is a certain sense in which conviction and judgment is the goal, right? But uh, it's a divine, biblical, spiritual conviction and judgment, not uh, a sinful one. So all of that is to simply say, when an unbeliever comes into your church, when, when the outsider comes into the church, we have obligations to be welcoming to them. We have obligations to speak the word of God clearly to them in the hopes that they will be convicted of their sin, that their secrets will be exposed, that they will see the power of God in the message, not in us, and will come to Christ in faith. But we are not called to try to make them feel a certain way. Uh, if someone leaves your church and didn't feel welcomed, it doesn't mean you did something wrong. It could, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Because the goal is not to make them feel a certain way. The goal is to treat them with love. The goal is to treat them with respect. And the goal is to preach the truth to them. Uh, and in the hopes that they will see God is truly among you. And hopefully join your ranks so should you make people feel welcome? No. Should you be welcoming? Yes. Hallelujah, the child is born. He is the rescue we've waited for. The throne of David, he will restore. So the song, it's it's December. We're doing, uh, we're we're observing Advent here at our church. Uh, I just love Advent season. I love Christmas. I love talking about the incarnation of Christ. I love the lights. I, I'm all about it. I love this time of year. I'm so excited. So I decided to do a Christmas song, but I decided to do one of my favorite modern contemporary Christmas songs, especially because this one just doesn't sound like a Christmas song. So it always catches people off guard. But I would argue lyrically, it's one of the best ever. And I think that if you are in a contemporary church that does contemporary music, I think this would be a good song for you to do in church. This is, now I, I think I've done Dustin Kensrue before, um, but let me just say it again. I recognize he has apostatized. I recognize he has fallen away from the faith. It breaks my heart. Um, so I'm not trying to promote him any longer, but this, his, this song is just too good. Uh, this song is called This Is War. Right, that's 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 what you want to hear from a Christmas song. This is war, and it's a short song lyrically. So let me just go through all of them to show you why I love it so much. He begins with the anticipation of Christmas. Right, we have songs that we call songs of anticipation. Come now, long expected Jesus. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. It's anticipating the coming of Christ, and he begins with that 
that biblical Christmas anticipation, that Advent. And he says, this is war like you ain't seen. And that's true. Our life is spiritual warfare. The winter's long, it's cold and mean. And again, we think of winter and Christmas, but that's obviously a spiritual winter. That time before Christ was a time of darkness. It was a spiritual winter and it was long. It's like Shakespeare, long is the winter of our discontent. That's what he's getting at here. This, this metaphoric winter, uh, this coldness, everything is dead. That's what the world was before the incarnation, a cold, dead world. It was a long winter. It's cold and mean. This is war like you ain't seen. This winter's long. It's cold and mean. With downcast hearts, we stood condemned. But the tide turns now at Bethlehem. It just gives me goosebumps. I love Christ did not come to be a fluffy, as Vody Bauckham once said, hair model Jesus. He came as a warrior. right? He came to accomplish the Father's will, to destroy the works of the devil. He came to, uh, to, 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 un, to, to, to fight. He came as a, and that's what that's what Christmas is. It's it's a it's a remembering our battle. It's remembering a, a a victory that was fought, and continuing that fight for our King. So I love that. But he continues. This is war, and born tonight the Word as flesh, the Lord of Light. Again, biblical phrases. The Son of God, the lowborn King, whom demons fear, whom angels sing. Biblical language, biblical terminology, really exalting Christ in a clear, simple way, it's really, really good. And then I love the, the bridge. The bridge is hallelujah, the child is born. He is the rescue we've waited for. The throne of David he will restore and reign with mercy forevermore. I love this for two reasons. One, it brings in the, the Davidic prophecy of the incarnation, which is it's important to Matthew. He, Matthew and Luke both bring it up. Right, this important understanding of Christ coming as the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Right, he brings David's throne into this, and this really is what Christmas is. If you read the Old Testament prophecies, like Isaiah chapter nine, the incarnation is directly tied to the kingship of Christ. It, it, Isaiah promises, promises for us a child, and it says the government will be on his shoulders, and he will rule with a rod of iron. Of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. So I love how he ties Christmas. The child is born to the throne of David and reigning and restoring the kingdom with mercy. It's, it's just so good and so biblical and so Christmassy. And then he finishes by saying, this is war on sin and death, which is exactly what it is. Christ came to rage war on sin and death. He came to defeat sin. He came to defeat death. And the dark will take its final breath. I love that personification. Evil comes to die at Christmas time. Right. Jesus has come to conquer evil. The dark will take its final breath. And then he ends it in this glorious way. It shakes the earth and confounds all plans. Now, what is it that shakes the earth? What is it that confounds all plans? The mystery of God is man. <laughs> right? The incarnation is an earth-shattering concept that God would actually come to earth, that God would become a man. This is so beyond us. It's so glorious that it's true that all we can really say is that it shakes the earth and confounds all plans so the, this is war uh, by the modern post um, dustin kensrew it is really really good i recommend it uh, but other than that thank you for joining me on this episode it's been a while hopefully we'll do some again in the future hopefully i'll have my fellow pastors with me on some and other church members and hopefully we'll get the quality fixed so thank you for persevering to the end 
Uh, thank you for listening. And as always, maintain the gospel and maintain the fight. God bless.